Well, good morning. I'll start again. Good morning, Sojourners Church. It's great to see you all here today. It's been a while since I've been in the pulpit, but it's always a great pleasure to share and teach God's Word to my fellow believers. The past two Sundays, we've heard Tyler do his summary on Matthew chapters 1 to 2, focusing on the King and the Kingdom. Today, I'm going to complete the hat trick and share my insights on those 12 chapters. So pray with me, please. So, Father, we gather this morning before you, Lord, in in worship and awe. Lord, we just um, pray that you send your spirit now and that you use the word, your word that we're going to hear uh, to impact our hearts, Lord. And just use the scripture just to reveal to us just who this Jesus is. And in his name we pray. Amen. I want to share with you this morning from the heart of an elder. It opens up. I'm sorry, uh, I, how I approach God's word is how I have heard from Matthew, from impressions I've taken in the series so far. I believe there is something very key in Matthew, and when you see it, it opens us up to a much bigger, brighter image and understanding of who the person of Christ is. Tyler started the Matthew series on April 24th. Since then, we've heard 25 sermons. He's preached through 12 chapters containing 395 verses, and approximately 24 hours of pulpit time. In my best estimates, he probably spent over 480 hours or more studying, praying on, and prepping for the sermon that we all have listened to. Because knowing, knowing him as Thad and I do, Tyler wants to make sure he, what he says in the pulpit is absolutely right, because he truly understands the seriousness of James 3.1. My hope is that there are things or details as Tyler preaches through Matthew that become either apparent to you for the first time or some things that have really helped you solidify your faith and you have something to share with someone else. My intro today, I'm going to review chapters 1 to 12 in approximately 23 hours and 52 minutes less than Tyler did it. My intention is to share with you from my heart something that I think is really key and what I believe is very vital to understanding the gospel and the, and the message of it to its core. Many times we read scripture as a story event, which is fine. But I learned a long time ago that the best way to interpret scripture is to lock in and learn key elements of scripture. Then read and study scripture through the lenses of those key elements. Let your knowledge build on, build on itself. Let scripture interpret scripture. Matthew establishes some key components early in his chapters. So turn to me in your Bibles now to chapter 1 of Matthew, verse 1. And as you're turning there, just let me say this. As we should view Matthew, Matthew as the gateway to the Gospels in the New Testament. His clear purpose is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Jewish nation's long-awaited Messiah. You especially see it with his continued Reference to Old Testament prophecy, thereby pointing out the fulfillment of the king and the kingdom. So, chapter 1. Right from the start, you'll see that Matthew leads off by identifying the person of Christ when he calls him the son of David, the son of Abraham, and follows with a detailed tracing of his human genealogy. Then, starting at verse 18, he details the incarnation, which identifies his divine genealogy as well. He identifies the God-man, Jesus Christ, right from the very beginning. 
he points out the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy of the virgin birth and make note of this. Again, he quotes the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy numerous times in the book to point out Jesus' true identity, and especially to the Jews. Chapter 2, right away in verse 1, we see Matthew refer, referring to Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Yet another Old Testament reference of, from, of the Messiah to be born, from Micah 5.2. In this chapter, we see the visit of the wise men, Joseph taking the child and his mother and fleeing to Egypt. Uh, well, Herod was killing the children, and their return then to Nazareth. Something to point out chronologically here and a point to why it's important to study the, the study of the Synoptic Gospels together, <clears throat> there's a big time gap here between chapter 2 and 3, approximately 30 years. But the only thing that we really know about that gap, it's, and it's special, and it fits our narrative today, is when Luke tells, 2 tells us about Jesus' visit to the temple at age 12. His parents went to the feast of the Passover every year. And when they left, Jesus had been left behind. And when they found him, he was in. He was at the temple. There we go. Do a little reset there. All right, back to it. Luke 2, uh, starting at 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Chapter 3, another very important chapter. John the Baptist prepares the way. We see in the first three verses, this rather eccentric prophet appears preaching, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And in verse 3, yet another reference of Old Testament reference fulfilled. This time from Isaiah 40. By the way, all four Gospels quote from this. Interesting, in Luke's Gospel, and him being a Greek and a Gentile and writing to the Gentiles, includes a little more of the quote from Isaiah. In Luke 3, 6, he includes, and all flesh see the salvation of God. He points out the inclusion of the Gentiles. And in verse 6 now, we see, back in chapter 3, we see John was baptizing the people of the region. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus appears to him to be baptized, and at first John's reluctant to do that. And then Jesus says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fulfilling for us to fulfill all Righteousness, And we see probably one of the most beautiful sets of scriptures there is. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up, up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open. And he saw, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's a beautiful display of the Trinity in Jesus as identified as the Son of God. Chapter 4, there's a lot in chapter 4, 
I'll just do a little bit here. There's the temptation of Jesus. The Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And to sum it up, he resists temptation by quoting Scripture. And then just to reference for uh, Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in every, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in all ways and yet maintains a sinless life, a very key characteristic of this God-man, Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 with the, finishes with the start of his ministry. Chapter 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, which introduces a series of five important discourses by Jesus. To summarize it, it's exposition of the law and the attack, and an attack on the legalism of the Pharisees and a multitude of topics, and a pattern resolve, revolves around the phase you have heard it said, but I say to you. The chapter ends, chapter 7 ends with a call to true faith and salvation. 8 and 9, you see a kickoff of a series of miracles we, where we see he cleanses a leper, heals many, casts out demons, calms the storm, forgives the sins of a paralytic, and he got up and walked, raised the dead, blind to see, mute to walk. And at the very end of chapter 9, we see this. And Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, teaching the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. And he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. Chapter 10 is a discourse with the commissioning of the twelve, sends the disciples out, ends with the hallmarks of discipleship. Chapters 11 and 12, we see a second narrative. In 11, we see Jesus' identity, then, is affirmed for John's disciples. Woes to the unrepentant cities. Rest offered to the weary. Chapter 12, we see Jesus' lordship asserted over the Sabbath. And we see more opposition from the Jewish leaders. And then as the chapter 12 ends, and while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Saying, Brothers and sisters in Christ are a true family. So, it's a very quick assessment of Matthew chapters 1 through 12, just to jog your memories a little bit about what you remember from the sermon so far in Matthew. Also in my personal studies, I found it sometimes very helpful to step back and look at the big t- picture in context. At the, at the to-, to the topic at hand, and sometimes important a point, pattern, or repetitive theme starts to emerge in your mind. If you look at the general entirety of Scripture, the overall view, you have the Old Testament, says someone is coming, Jesus anticipated. Gospels say someone is here, Jesus is revealed, which is what we've been really focusing on the last 25 weeks. Epistles, someone is coming again, Jesus is explained and returns. But as you drill down into Matthew, we see some things as well, such as Matthew quotes the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. It's a common. Uh, we observe the repetitive phrases, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and we see a continual struggle between Jesus and the religious leaders. The fact is we see Jesus as king 
And how that image of Jesus starts to develop in our mind is key. So let's going back to the very ending of the Sermon on the Mount is from the sermon text today. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not their scribes. There are several places in the Gospel of Matthew as well, uh, and in the rest of the New Testament, where, where Jesus is said to have authority. For Matthew, this stands out, and it becomes very evident to me that he is trying to convey this very truth to his readers. I hope to try and point out the scope of Jesus' authority, what Jesus' authority is, and how it impacts us today in the story of his life revealed in the Gospels, that he might truly, you might truly grasp what his authority means to us. Another process I find useful in personal studies is when interpreting scriptures is to read the definition of the words, even when they're familiar to us. A basic word like authority, the power or right to give orders and make decisions and enforce obedience. This translated English word from the Greek is transliterated as exosia, and it means authority, power, or right. It's a very common word in the New Testament. So, for example, we'll talk more about authority. We might say a person who has, who has authority has the ability to give direction to other people. Generally, that authority also limited to specific, limited to specific areas, or it could even be more comprehensive. When my kids were very young, I had authority to control their lives. It didn't always seem to be true, but in reality, I had that authority. That authority lessened as, I, as they grew, and it is essentially gone. Those of you here today with young kids understand what I'm saying, and you older members say, I remember those years well. As I approach the final years of my career, my current role is I'm a director of a division of a major corporation. And with that, I have the authority to give direction to a group of people and have the final say in the direction of, of the division. I have authority over 80 employees. No one gets a raise unless I approve it. All expenditures are only done under my authority. All major business decisions, budgets are all done under my authority. But I can also delegate my authority, as I do to my managers. But my authority is limited. I tell them what to work on and how I want it done. But I'm limited that I have the ability, and I can only give the direction, in the, but I cannot give directions to their personal lives. And so many times I wish I could. I also am under authority. I work under the authority of my boss. His authority was limited to workplace issues, but within the arena, I am responsible to the company. I also remain under authority of the civil authorities of my country. I will very reluctantly use the word mask as an example. I am responsible to follow the duly established laws, and if I fail that responsibility, I suffer the consequences. The word authority is a strong word. When we hear the word authority, there's a certain force about the word or a certain intimidation about the word. We talk about the authorities and we rightfully have a sense of respect or awe or sometimes fear. The word authority denotes privilege, power, rule, control, influence. When someone has authority, that means they have control of other people. Now, I kind of beat the authority, definition of authority, to death. But I want to give you a very clear picture 
of the definition on our level. Now, thinking about the authority of Christ, perhaps it's helpful to consider two words and break it down this way. Power and authority. Power is the ability to do something. Authority is the right to do it. And when we say Jesus had authority, we mean not just that he had power, but he had the privilege as well. God had given him the privilege of acting in his behalf in this world with no regard for authorities of men. He has the power and he has the privilege that was given to him by God. Let's look at some biblical examples, and I like to use scripture to define it. Let's take a look at the faith of the centurion from Matthew 8. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am too under authority with the soldiers under me, and I say one to go, and he goes, and another to come, and he comes, and to my servant to this, and he does. Now the centurion had faith to understand that Jesus had the authority to heal his servant. Let's see how the rest of the story ends. Jesus' response, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I heard such faith. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that moment. We find a very good example of authority here. In this case, the Roman centurion came to Jesus asking for healing servant. When Jesus asked about going to the centurion's home to heal the servant, the centurion responded with a statement on authority. The centurion knew that the, with the authority that comes with the right to command and the power to see what the commands are carried out. The centurion did not say this to brag about his own authority. Rather, and the key here is this, was an acknowledgement oh, that he had recognized the authority of Jesus. We knew that he knew that Jesus had both the right and the power, again from our definition of ecclesia, to give healing to his, his servant. And then he could exercise that power wherever he was. Back to the sermon text today. Um, Talk about Jesus to teach like, like other teachers. Much of his teachings, especially early on, was on the form of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And that was what the crowds found so amazing. His teaching was not based on the authority of another teacher. Rather, he taught as one who was an authority on Scripture itself. But his authority went much deeper than his teaching. And this is where I get intrigued. And you should too, because this is the core of the message. He had the authority to forgive sins. This is the story of Jesus heals the paralytic. And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people bought, brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw the faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? 
For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home when the crowd saw it. They were afraid, and they, and they glorified God, and they had given such a th- that God had given such authority to men. We find the story of this paralyzed man brought to Jesus by his friends. Jesus told them that his sins were forgiven. And when challenged by the religious elite of the day who equated sin and sickness, he healed the man to demonstrate that he had the authority to also forgive sins. The crowds were amazed. God had given the authority to a man. The authority to give sins or forgive sins was rightly as observed to belong to God. But God had given the authority to Jesus. The authority then also to heal the sick and cast out demons. Jesus commissioned the disciples and sent them out to surrounding towns. And as part of the commissioning, he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. In order to, to give that authority to the disciples, Jesus must also have had the authority. And he demonstrated that repeatedly in the Gospels. Wherever Jesus went, he healed the sick and cast out evil spirits. This is what the centurion previously mentioned had come to believe, that Jesus had this authority over sickness and evil spirits. We see Jesus' authority over, over creation, calming the storm. And we got in the boat with his, his disciples and followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? Disciples in fear woke up the sleeping Jesus, and Jesus responded by rebuking the wind and the waves. In response, the wind and the sea became still. Wind quit blowing, the sea became calm, and his disciples were amazed that the wind had obeyed his orders. The word authority isn't used in this account, but it's obviously implied. Jesus issued a command of the wind and the waves, and it was obeyed instantly. So we've seen Jesus demonstrating his authority in many ways. Authority over scripture, authority to forgive sins, authority over disease, healing, and even death. He showed authority over demons by casting them out, and even the creation. One might be led to believe that the exercise of authority is all about the use of power. But in the kingdom, Jesus established there is a little bit of a twist. The power to rule within the kingdom is not what we would expect. Let's jump ahead to chapter 20. Sorry, Tyler, getting ahead of you, I know. But I think it's valuable to bring this up here. His teaching about authority. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase through this, and we'll go back and read a couple of the verses. In Matthew 20, we find James and John, along with their mother, coming to Jesus, asking for places of honor and authority when he comes into the kingdom. This did not go over well with the other disciples, and so Jesus had to talk to them about authority in the kingdom. Starting at verse 26, And it shall not be... Oh, 
so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be a servant, and whoever must be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, not, not, but not, I'm sorry, Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. The real lesson here, there's a lot you can break out of here, but the real lesson here is there is no room for arrogance and pride with authority. So many people fail on this. Think of the number of people, how the number of big-name pastors that have failed in the last few years. For that matter, there's a real danger for any pastor or church leader. The Pharisees were sure, very sure and very guilty of this. In this world, those of... There are those who are thought to be great, exercise, who exercise authority over other people. The more authority you have, you have over others, the greater you're thought to be. But not so in the kingdom. Rather, it is those who serve are the greatest. And Jesus is one who had the authority, demonstrated this by washing the disciples' feet and by dying on the cross on behalf of a lost and dying world. I love this quote by Alistair Begg. In the life of a Christian... Humility is the precursor to biblical wisdom. Now, let's talk about the source of the authority. His authority challenge. This is from Matthew 21. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was preaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, also, we'll ask you a question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, Neither I will tell you by what authority I do these things. During Jesus' final week before his crucifixion, he spent every day in Jerusalem, frequently in the temple courts. And on one of those occasions, he was challenged by the Jewish leaders about his authority to do what he was doing. They considered themselves to be the authority over the temple complex and all that took place within it. And it was clear to them that Jesus was acting under an authority other than theirs. They gave him the answer, we don't know. And I think we all know, the, I think they did. You see, Jesus had so much authority that it was a problem to the Jewish system. Because you see, they believed that they were the authorities. He didn't ask them to approve his healings. He didn't ask them to approve casting out of demons. He didn't ask them to approve verdicts and judgments. He didn't ask them to help them decide who were the children of God. He didn't ask, ask for their advice on how to give eternal life. He pretty much just ignored them. The relationship struggle between Jesus and the religious authorities pretty much started at the beginning of his ministry. And the key here is this struggle was all about his authority. Jesus declined to answer the request for the, for the source of his authority, likely knowing it would just cause even more controversy. But clearly Jesus knew that he drew his authority from the Father above. It's from John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us, Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus, Jesus said to him, 
Have I been with you so long, you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. As we push to my conclusion, there's one more, I think, very important aspect to Jesus' authority that we need to say. And that is, you go to the end of Matthew, and that is the Great Commission. You see, when Jesus came and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is an amazing claim to privilege, amazing claim to power and permission or right. And we have seen Jesus demonstrate that very well in his ministry. But there is one who has the authority. And then Jesus said this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that have been commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The commission Jesus gave to his disciple was not to them alone. The commission was given to the church as a whole. That commission also grants us authority to carry it out. And the authority included the the ability and the right to commission his followers to continue the work he started. Based on the authority of Jesus, the church has the authority to go out of the world and make teaching disciples. Our authority is to act in the world as a delegated authority to do to go out in the world and make disciples. We have the authority to take the gospel into the world around us. We have the authority to make disciples, leading the lost to their creator and redeemer. We have the authority to help disciples grow in maturity and faithfulness to all our Lord. And with all that authority comes responsibility. We are responsible to the one who has granted that authority to us. We need to be faithful to the task he has given us. With the faithfulness comes reward, but unfaithfulness leads to disaster. So let's be faithful to this responsibility we've been given, acting under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. John 10. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. He had the authority to give his life. He had the authority to raise it from the dead. He had authority over his own resurrection. So as church, as, so church, as you hear this series on Matthew preached, where do you personally stand with Jesus? The son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, This God-man, Jesus Christ, this man who fulfilled all the prophecies and fulfilled all righteousness by living a sinless life, who has the authority over, I won't list it, I'll just say everything, but who became a servant and laid down his life for our salvation. (coughs) We have been studying in Matthew about this king, our king, and his kingdom. But this is America, right? Let's be honest about it. We don't like other people interfering in our lives, demanding obedience, and generally speaking, we don't like people telling us what to do at all. This is why we hear phrases today like, my body, my choice. And certainly we don't like people telling us 
what to do when it comes to spiritual matters. Probably why church discipline is so unpopular today. Our culture looks upon Jesus as a respectable Jesus, and we can use him to our advantage when needed. At our choosing, just as long as he doesn't interfere with our worldly ways. But we all know and we have seen the gospel message clearly describes a different image of Jesus for us to follow and to worship. Pray with me. Listen as I pray through some of Colossians 1 as we close. Colossians 1, starting at 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him thing, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, and in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself things, whether on earth, earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death in order to present you blameless, holy and blameless, above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under earth. Heavenly Father, gracious God, sometimes it's just mind-boggling to comprehend all of this. But you just made it so simple with just faith. My prayer now is for everyone hearing my voice. Father, just give them a glimpse of your spirit. Reveal to them these incredible truths, this, this authority of Jesus and what this all means, that this just solidifies their faith to live their lives worthy with a passion to serve you. We pray this all in the name of the one who has been given all authority. Amen.